You're listening to John Anderson Direct with Victor Davis Hanson. It's terrific to welcome Victor Davis Hanson back to this conversation series. He's the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow in Residence in Classics and Military History at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University, California. Professor Hanson has also uh, several other prestigious academic posts. He is uh, an historian of both ancient and modern history, with a special emphasis on the history of warfare. He also has his own podcast, The Victor Davis Hanson Show, where he speaks at length about global and American affairs and cultural issues. His latest book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America, has just been released, and I certainly commend it. We'll turn to it shortly. Well, Victor, a million thanks for coming on again. We agreed to talk about uh, this very, very important book, The Dying Citizen, the last time we spoke to uh, push it along a bit in Australia, because I think it ought to be read as widely here as it ought to in your country. Uh, But of course, in the meantime, the world has really reached a very dangerous place in terms of the Russians, Ukraine, and let's not leave China out of it and how we might respond. In fact, your book is entirely relevant to what we were looking at, I think. You've got the world now dividing. You've got two massively authoritarian and very threatening uh, countries uh, giving us a choice between a new authoritarianism dominating the globe uh, versus what might be called the, the citizenship model of the West, where uh, we're in danger of giving up that citizenship voluntarily. Your, your book says, it, its name says it's all, The Dying Citizen. So these are worrying times. But if you don't mind, I'd, just, I'd really like to get your views uh, on the most pressing global issue at the moment. That's obviously uh, uh, Russia and the Ukraine. It's clear that Putin has aspirations to annex the Ukraine in some form or another. It seems like a throwback to 19th and 20th century attempts by empires to reclaim historical territories. What do you think is Putin's game? Why is the Ukraine such an important prize? And we're plainly in very real danger if we're not already in a Cold War of being in one, possibly a hot war, in coming weeks if this is mishandled. I know that's a big issue, but I'd love your feeling, uh, your your insights. Well, I, I think Putin feels that the post-Cold War era didn't work out for Russia the way that he had envisioned it. And by that, he means that he does not have the wherewithal to be on the stage, same stage as superpowers like the United States and China. And he thinks he could be, should he reclaim most or much of the 100 million people he lost in population when the Soviet Union evaporated and the 30% of the territory. And when he looks at the map, he sees Ukraine, it's rich in natural gas, it has precious metals, it's got Europe's most fertile pharma, and he thinks that this is central to these irredentist plans to reclaim, as you said, this sort of Russian empire. And how that goes about, he looks at Georgia or he looks at Eastern Ukraine or Crimea, and the degree to which he acts immediately is predicated on the status in the West. And the status in the West 
And that includes Japan and Australia, South Korea, as well as the EU, NATO, and the United States and Canada. It depends on whether the world price of oil is high and he's rich in petrodollars and we're paying out the nose for energy that we can't or won't produce ourselves. It depends on whether NATO is at each other's throats or they're following the German lead of not meeting their um, their defense obligations to spend 2% of their budgets on uh, military readiness, or Germany is conducting something like this Nord Stream 2 pipeline, and also well, the American president. If the American president is begging Putin to pump more oil when he won't, or when he's asking him to lay off 16 entities when the Russian hackers are disrupting a pipeline in America as they did in January, but he's begging him not to stop or forcing him not to stop, but just divert a little bit his attention to other uh, other entities. When you have that situation falling in Afghanistan, then he feels opportunistic and he feels the West either can't or spent or won't defend its own interests. So I'm going to go into Ukraine. I think what in this particular instance, what's fooled him is that he didn't count on the response because of these things I talked about. But it was so embarrassing to NATO and the United States and the West that he so flagrantly went in to kill people and and wreck that country. He didn't use the full force, the full wherewithal that was at his disposal for the first four or five days. He's been shocked. He's been shocked at the Ukrainian resistance. He's been shocked that NATO is now talking more like Winston Churchill than Neville Chamberlain. Uh, the German chancellor gave a stunning speech that he basically repudiated everything that Germany has stood for for 30 years. You know, we're going to produce energy, fossil fuels, no Nordstrom pipeline. We're going to rearm. We're going to have 2%. We're going to meet the 2%. Everybody should. And it was no green anti-American boilerplate. I wish our own president would emulate that uh, speech. And so Putin now is he's befuddled. He's confused, but it doesn't it doesn't erase the point that he has the ability and the potential to crush Ukraine if he puts all of his resources there. And that's what he's going to be doing in the next week. And now it's just a race between a belated Western effort to send Javelin missiles, which, by the way, I think is the most effective weapon in the world now in terms of cost efficacy, 200,000 plus 80 for the for the charge or the the bullet, so to speak, and then you can take out a tank at two and a half miles with you know fire and forget. So it's a very valuable but expensive commodity, and we have not given them enough. Donald Trump uh, reversed the Obama decision not to give them that, but we but we still haven't given them up. And I don't know why the West didn't pour it in November and December and January because when you see those columns, John, of you know forty miles of Russian material on trucks and tanks coming in to destroy Kiev, you would think they would be easy targets, but not easy targets if you don't have enough anti-tank weapons. And so now we're in a race to supply them. And that has finally brought a response from um, Vladimir Putin. He's a student of history and he knows that no uh, invasion can put down an insurrection unless the borders are closed. We had trouble in Iraq because of Syria and Iran supplies. We had uh, trouble in Afghanistan because of the Pakistan open border. We had problems going back to Vietnam and Korea, Korea with China, uh, Afghanistan, 
uh, as well with pa the Pakistan border, but also in the case of Vietnam with Southeast Asia and the Ho Chi Minh Trail, as you remember from the Australian contribution. So he's looking now and he says, I can, I can destroy this independent country and absorb it, but not if NATO wakes up and they use their four corridors of, you know, Romania, Hungary, Poland, Slovakia, and pour these weapons in that can nullify my advantage. So now he's threatening the use of nuclear weapons uh, vaguely, but not, you know, not ambiguously. So to, to NATO, he doesn't, and he's, he feels he won't be able to win, I think, if he can't close the borders. So you're painting a picture that actually this has proved much more difficult than he expected because surprisingly, Europe has very belatedly, but nonetheless, quite surprisingly, stepped up. I mean, Germany's turnaround is something to behold. Who would ever have thought, frankly, that they would do it? Uh, but uh, am I hearing you say that he will probably succeed in the Ukraine, but that his broader objectives of putting uh, much more together after that and somehow prospering from it now looks pretty blunted? Yeah, I think the next five days will tell whether he succeeds or not, and that will be predicated on how quickly these weapons are in the hands of Ukrainians that know how to use them. I, I think it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that the world's supply of Javelin missiles and American shoulder-fired anti-missile uh, shooters are now on the way to Ukraine. I think that all of the NATO countries, the United States, probably you in Australia, you're emptying your stocks and you're pouring everything in there. It's, it's up to 15,000, I think, javelins. And they're so expensive that, you know, a lot of these countries don't have a lot of them. And so if they come in time and, and they can make the difference then Putin will be stymied along with the sanctions. But I think he thinks they won't because he'll threaten people who are supplying them. But more importantly, he feels that if you and I have this conversation a month from now, John, that he will be successful and that we will not be talking about the rough time he had the first five days or six days or the deaths and the destruction or his unpopularity or the sanctions. But he, in his calculus, he will be thinking, they'll say, oh my God, Vladimir Putin in the 21st century just swallowed an entire country. And he did it in less than three weeks. And what are we going to do? because he's got his eye on the Baltic states. He's gonna be pressuring every Russian speaking former Republic. He's got his eye on it. What are we gonna do? And so that's what, I don't know if that's accurate in reality, but that's what, what his impression is that the aims will be so beneficial to Russia that he's willing to, what he considers these, you know, these detours or cul-de-sacs on his way to get there that we're now enmeshed in and then our euphoria that he didn't win like he did in Crimea or Georgia or uh, East Ukraine. He didn't win in the first 72 hours. We're euphoric. But I think if we stand back, uh, you know, it's sort of like the Polish army fighting very heroically the first couple of days in Poland. And then they were surrounded by three invasions plus the Soviet Union. They collapsed. And so I... I am cautiously optimistic, but when I hear people, some of my colleagues say, Putin will be disgraced, he's embarrassed, he's broke, there'll be a coup of an oligarch, a general will come in, they'll remove him, or there'll be millions in the streets of Russia. I don't see that. Every time he went into Crimea 
and um, Georgia, there was a huge uptick in his popularity. They weren't as bad the first three days as this, but if he can turn this around, and I hope he doesn't, and I hope these weapons come there and we're, and we're very forceful. It's interesting to contemplate, you know, the Russian economy is uh, only a tiny bit bigger than the Australian economy. We're just 25 million people. <laughs> we're, we're a lot of debate here about our one-shot military. As a senior military guy referred to it himself the other day, you know, we need to do a lot more, but we might come back to that in a moment. In the meantime, here is an economy that has benefited from, uh, and will continue to benefit if they can find a way to trade, from the West's confused policy on energy, I would have thought. Now, as I understand it, under both Obama, President Obama and Trump, America became energy self-sufficient. Uh, fracking was allowed. If I'm, I think I'm right in saying Obama at one stage said, thank God for fracking, it's helping us reach our environmental objectives. Trump well, he was a late, he, he didn't open Anwar up the Alaskan uh, reserve that's got about a potential of a million to two million barrels a day, that was closed. And he did stop federal, new leasing of federal lands for natural gas. And he was ambiguous. They had committees and they had about Keystone, but it was not green lighted. But because the price of gasoline got so high and he was under pressure, he sort of said, well, if the trackers want to do it, I won't really stop them. But we never got up to this incredible 13 million barrels. So when Trump came in, he opened the Anwar field. He opened new federal leases on new lands for gas and oil. He greenlighted uh, Keystone. And then more importantly, he told banks and lending agency that he wanted them and they, they were to lend to frackers and horizontal drillers. And then he went and told them that you're heroic people. And the result of the jawboning and these policies were that we had an incredible surge in which we became the largest uh, natural gas producer and oil producer in the history of civilization. We were, we were on our way to 13 and a half, 14 million barrels of oil alone. We were energy insufficient. Uh, we were energy self-sufficient if you look at, you know, we were exporting and importing, but the, the, the net total was we were producing more than we were consuming. And so it was, a, it was a stunning success. And then in addition to that, I think we sometimes forget this. He said to the Germans, almost right when he came to the office, that famous confrontation when he's talking to the NATO members, and he says, Germany has no business with this Nordstrom II, and we're going to sanction it. But we have a carrot. We are going to open up new federal lands and we will have billions of cubic feet of natural gas and we'll, we're going to have liquefied natural gas ports and we can send it, a lot of it to you. And what we can't send to you, we're really high on this Cypriot Greek-Israeli pipeline, the so-called East Med project that was going to send another whole uh, slew of natural gas through Italy. And so he was trying to find ways to break this logjam. And when people came back to him and said, well, it'll cause global warming or the Turks won't like it or the Russians won't, he didn't, that was oblivious. So when he left office here in the United States, gas was very cheap. It's, it's doubled in price in California, doubled. And we've never paid, I've never in my entire life paid $5 a gallon, which we are paying now in California. So it was a stunning achievement and Biden came in and his candidacy and then his 
transition and his presidency was in the hands of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, uh, I think the Obamas and the squad, and they all were John Kerry, radical green uh, advocates. And we've lost almost three million barrels. A lot of this was tragic because it it really meant that it was a contributor to this seven and a half, eight percent annual inflation that we're suffering. It was a contributor to sort of bad relations with Canada when we reneged on the uh, the Keystone Pipeline that would have given us Alberta oil. It was uh, it showed that we were weak when we were begging Putin and the Saudi royal family, both of which had been targets of sort of virtue signaling criticism from uh, Mr. Biden. So uh, if he had just said, you know, these are all my achievements and plagiarized Trump's work, and I, I would have preferred that, everybody would have, and then he could have taken credit for what was very successful. But he wasn't interested in pragmatism. It was ideology ruled everything. So my, my point out of all of that, yeah, I take what you're saying, um, is, is though that once again, the West, in this case, its leader, America, the most powerful of the Western nations, has weakened itself in pursuit of ideology rather than pragmatism and recognizing what's really happening. At the same time, as it set in train um, uh, factors that, in a way, strengthen Putin's hand. You know, high energy prices play right into Putin's hand. He did. I would have thought. So here's the rub. In a way, for, for, for what you call liberals, what we might call in Australia greens, to so pursue energy policies in, you know, because of their concerns about climate, that they place at risk the liberal global order and increase the chances of us tipping over into a world that's dominated by authoritarianism. That would be the worst possible outcome for everyone, including people worried about climate, I would have thought, because there's no evidence that the Chinese or the Russians give tuppany about um, uh, uh, about emissions. Not really. In the past, has subsidized green groups in the West. They love green groups, and the Chinese have as well. And, you know, I think you summed it up pretty well. Tonight is the president's State of the Union address in a few hours, and he's got a big problem because... His green energy protocols, which override pragmatism, and it's a war on fossil fuels, the open border, the inflationary modern monetary theory policies, the Afghanistan, the woke movement, the politicalization of the military. Now they're not domestic issues anymore, John. They have foreign policy ramifications, as we see in Ukraine. So the the American people are saying, wait a minute, if our border is open and two million people invaded, how do we have the intellectual heft or integrity to go over there and say to the Ukrainians, you've got to secure your border? If we have this inflationary policy and we're printing two trillion a year and we have 30 trillion in debt, how can we engage in a successful financial war with China or Russia who have surpluses? If we are begging Putin for energy and Europe is dependent on his gas and oil and he's you know he's rich in petrodollars that are flowing in in the billions every day with this increased price why are we deliberately not using the resources we have that are greater than either Russia's or China's and if we want to have a military that deters people like Putin 
Why do we get, get out of Afghanistan the way we did? Why is Mark Milley, our chairman of the Joint Chiefs, saying that our existential threats are the twins of climate change and white rage, or Lloyd Austin, our defense secretary, saying white supremacy, rather than battlefield efficacy being our, our prime consideration and cutting the defense budget under uh, oh, he, his first budget, uh, Biden suggested we cut the defense budget. So what I'm getting at is that this woke, green, whatever you want to call it, initiative that's not unique to the United States has, I think you are suggesting, it has foreign policy ramifications. It weakens the West. And when you start to collate what the Chinese and the Russians say, it's pretty clear that they they like what we're doing to ourselves. And they say that we're decadent, we're at too affluent, we're too pudgy. They have all different mechanisms and metaphors and similes. But, uh, and you know, we, have, we as conservatives have to be very, very careful because we know that what they are saying, there's truth to it, but we don't want to, in agreement with them by any mechanism or means or any, any methods suggest that uh, therefore, because they're right that we're in a, in a cannibalistic mode, they have a right to take advantage of it. I think a lot of conservatives will say, well, we're decadent, Putin was right, we've destroyed our deterrence, Putin was right, it's none of our business, let him go in there and that'll show everybody what happens and you know, maybe there won't be pride flags and George Floyd murals, at least in Ukraine. Well, that's the wrong attitude. We've got to find a mechanism to say yes, Putin and China saw how weak we are, but we're going to go full bore and correct those those vulnerabilities and deter them. It's sort of like during uh, World War One, uh, World War Two in the United States, we had the America First, but we were uh, there was a lot of isolationism. But after Pearl Harbor, uh, the criticism there were two types of isolationists. There were the people who said, "We warned you that you were you were kind of a socialistic country and you were not." And then, and they were incorporated into really the leading spokesman of war against Japan. And then there were the Charles Lindbergh people who said, uh, we don't want to get involved or, and they became irrelevant. And so I think conservatives have to not confuse what's at stake. It, it reminds me, it's the foreign policy here in this country, John, it's the foreign policy equivalent of the, the rancor over the election. We all know that in 2020, the laws in the key states that determined the electoral college outcome were altered, and they were altered in an unconstitutional fashion by court edict and bureaucratic fiat against the constitutional prerogatives of state legislatures who had laws. And the result was we had 102 million ballots for the first time, 64% were mailed in our early voting. We've never had that before. The error rate went down. And that was that was catastrophic for Trump. But I don't think you can make the argument from that. Oh well, the ballots were rigged, or the computers were communicating with China, kind of a Sidney Powell, Linwood, Kraken. And to do that and say, well, on election day, all the computers were these conspiracy. It weakened that that legitimate that legitimate criticism. So I hope that conservatives and their anger at how we've been. Uh, wep uh, warped by wokeness and political correctness, don't let that anguish uh, channel into sort of, uh, well, let, let Putin do what he wants, or he's at least he's Christian or something like that. We've got to be very careful, I think.
Yeah, I've heard uh, you know a, a little bit of a hint from some American conservative commentators that are oh, so let's just retreat the overtones of that isolationism again uh, as. <laughs> Uh, that that would be a disaster globally. Can I put an Australian perspective on this that I find quite interesting? Um, uh, a couple of days ago, a very interesting poll here revealed that uh, two-thirds of Australians are truly shocked by what's happened in the Ukraine, and it's been a giant wake-up call. They see it as a, a, a serious threat to global security. But three-quarters see China as an even greater threat. So in a sense, I think they're starting to see clearly that we are at a very dangerous tipping point globally, as I see it anyway. Can we just tease out, Putin must have been very surprised. In fact, I'm very surprised where I sit in Australia, that the Europeans have got their act together a bit. And Germany in particular has been prepared to really take some big risks, you know, with the pipeline, the gas pipeline um, being suspended saying they will double defence spending, that their military is not ready, they want to get it into shape. What I'm really driving at here is that it seems to me that if there's one thing that Americans, I take it, still broadly agree on, is that China is the number one threat. They're agreed that China is a problem. For years, I think a lot of thinking Americans have said the Europeans and NATO need to step up and do more for themselves is there a prospect that they will do that and leave America in particular free to focus on keeping the Pacific stable? That would be the hope. And there's a great euphoria here on both sides of the aisle. People are, are making grandiose claims that now Europe uh, is taking defense seriously and that Putin has been a great gift because all the jawboning jaw of uh, Presidents Clinton and Obama and Bush and Trump could not achieve as much as uh, in you know 12 or 16 years than uh, Putin did in just a week. And that's there's some truth to that. But let's wait two months from now, John, and let's, heaven forbid, not hope, but keep open the possibility, dreadful though it be, that Putin takes Ukraine. And he's bragging that he absorbed not a Crimea or an eastern Ukraine, but a whole country. And now he's on the borders of, you you know, once again, he's on the borders of Poland and Ura Romania and Hungary. And he's very close to Austria and the Czech Republic and, and Germany. And at that point, what will be the, the reaction when he says you're very cold next winter and I'm not going to and you want my natural gas. And oh, by the way, I have decided that you cannot. You cannot have this particular type of offensive weapon in your NATO country. And after his performance, if it's successful in Ukraine, it'll be see if it'll be curious to see if the Germans either are able, as as the richest nation in NATO and the second largest in its population, are they able to say no? We we're, we we adhere to what we told you a year ago or three months ago. Our army is determined to repel you if you come in. We have NATO allies. And uh, we don't need your energy. We don't want it. I don't know if that's going to be possible for them to reverse a 30-year mentality in a matter of months. I hope it is. And I think the United States can do them a great service by helping them. But you make another very good point. And it's been very, it's been widely, I've been very surprised how aware Amer Americans are of it. It breaks down left on right here. The, the 
the left says to people, the existential enemy is Ukraine, 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 and Russia, I mean, the Russians in Ukraine, and these crazy conservatives are still talking about the real threat is China. And the conservative says, well, Putin, we have to deal with him, but he only has 140 people, 40 million people, and his economy is small, is one-tenth the size of NATO, and NATO's aggregate economy, and NATO has a billion people. So if you look at wherewithal China versus Russia, it's China. And the problem we have with this on the conservative side is that Russia is a very primitive propagandist. Uh, you know better than I do, John, in every Western movie, the villain these days is a white Russian with gaps in his teeth, covered with orthodox tattoos with a bad accent, pitted against some Hollywood uh, young starlet. But, and so it's easy to, to, to see how primitive and, and caricatured Russia pro Russian propaganda efforts are. China's a different story. China's insidious. They they have really tapped into the woke agenda, and you dare criticize them. And on Monday, they will say you're racist and you're continuing a long Western tradition of the yellow peril or Japanese in prison camps during War II. And then on Tuesday, some CEO, a Michael Bloomberg, a Mark Zuckerberg, a Bill Gates, uh, a Jamie Dimon or somebody in Wall Street will sort of subtly say, you know, the Chinese aren't bad. And then on Wednesday, the NBA or Hollywood will say, well, we have a huge market or we have endorsements or they're working well with us in joint ventures. So it, there, there's just so much more devious and effective propagandists and po more powerful that I think you're wise that we have to be very, very careful by thinking that once Putin is contained, we're, we're home free. And in China, you, they've been very brilliant in their reaction to Ukraine. The first moment they came out with ostensible support, and then they scanned the horizon, shocked of the European and the American and the other Western response, they pulled back from Putin a little bit, but not enough to put them in a position not to go back and, and approve of him if he wins. And so now they're sitting on the sidelines uh, giving mixed signals, watching the pulse of the battlefield. If he loses, they're, they're going to say it's outrageous and we warned him not to do this and we don't agree in this territorial acquisition. But if he wins, they're going to fault the West for it and say this is, uh, he, he had a right to go into Ukraine because of uh, Russian speakers and you know where that's going to go vis-a-vis uh, -vis Taiwan. Do you buy into the theory that the Chinese would be watching very, very closely uh, that Western reaction? And then, and you've got a division between those who think we'd better keep the global order in some sort of condition so that we can trade, that's our prosperity key, and those who say, no, reunification's so important and we're now so advanced and so powerful that we can do it. So you've got that tension between the two. Obviously, of great interest to us in Australia. We don't want Taiwan to be this region's Ukraine. Uh, the Chinese, uh, you know, they really have, it's been an extraordinary game. They say they always respect other countries' territorial sovereignty. They've sat on the fence. They're the one people that Putin could not ignore if they were to say, pull back, you know, and, and the civilised world ought to note that. The Chinese are the people who have the power to do it and they haven't used it. Further than that, if you stop and think about it, the rest of the world is prepared to wear the pain, at least for now, of sanctions, 
what does China do? Say, well, we'll buy your wheat, we'll buy your oil, we'll buy your coal. Another 100 million tonnes of coal, which ought to be noted by the Greens, uh, so that they know what we're really dealing with here. Yeah, I think China, on the one hand, as you point out, they are worried about public opinion to the degree that affects their uh, their accessibility to Western markets and infiltrate Western universities and Western military alliances and ports and the Silken Road and all that. That's all predicated on the nice, happy-faced China that has been unfairly maligned by Western elites. That's their their view. But on the other hand, they cannot condemn Russia because that's exactly what they are planning to do in Taiwan. They feel that a country that has native speakers on their borders has innate ties that supersede any international law about a country that declares themselves independent. They don't think Taiwan is independent. Russia thinks that Ukraine was never independent. They feel they have the same language, the same culture, and they're tools of the West to weaken them. And so they're going to have to they're going to be subtle about it, but they're going to eventually and ultimately side with Russia and Ukraine and hope they win. I wouldn't be surprised if they're doing more than just wishing their their win because they're going to go into Taiwan maybe sooner or later or later and sooner. We don't know, but eventually they're going to try to go into Taiwan and they can't be on record that that would be contrary to international law and they would resent that. And I, it'll be interesting to see uh, what will be the lesson militarily from Ukraine, how long the Ukrainians last, and if they're analogous to how long the Taiwanese would last, and what would be the effect uh, of sanctions on China? Because after all, it's easy to say an oligarch can't pull up his huge uh, yacht into you know, Barcelona or the Piraeus, or it's easy to say that you're going to deny uh, a general, an ATM when he's on, you know, vacation in France. But it's quite another thing to tell the, the Chinese with all of that money and all of that influence that they can't do this and they can't do that when you have so many joint ventures, investments, students, athletes, actors, the whole cultural apparatus of the West is so invested in China that I just don't think we would be very effective trying to do to China what we're doing pretty successfully with Russia. Russia is so small and it's so despised anyway, but China is both playing the, uh, the the marginalized person card, but they're also so powerful compared to Russia. You paint quite a bleak picture, just as a matter of interest. We've all been um, taken by the courage and determination of the Ukrainian people. It is worth remembering uh, that it's a place where there's a lot of corruption and in fact despite all of their natural wealth that corruption seems presumably lies at the heart of the reality that the average ukrainian has even lower income uh, uh, streams than the average russian yes uh, absolutely they're poorer than the russian uh, despite all of their natural resources all of their natural advantages they don't so have points I, I, to, uh, yeah you're I absolutely right you know i think there's a big not that people thought they would roll over, but they thought they would be analogous to here in the United States. People thought they'd be analogous to the, the Crimeans or the Georgians or Osatia. In other words, they would fight for a while. But given their corruption and given that they have some of the most lucrative uh, 
assets in terms of farmland metals and, and fossil fuels in Europe, and given they haven't utilized them to the benefit of the people, and given they have interfered, I mean, we're talking about Alexander Vindman and the whistleblower were responsible for the impeachment of a president on the grounds that he somehow suspended aid for a while to Ukraine to investigate the Bidens when subsequent news shows that he was the only president in history who demanded that Ukraine get offensive American-made weapons and be what he thought the Biden consortium was doing with Ukraine was, was underestimated. We know now from the investigations of uh, John Durham and the laptop of Hunter Biden that that corrupt government was interfering in the politics of the United States going way back to 2012 when Joe Biden was vice president. So given all of that baggage, I don't think anybody thought, you know, that Ukraine would capture the hearts and minds of Americans, and yet it has. And so it's testament to the people. And uh, there is a sense, too, that, and I maybe you feel it in Australia, John, or your listeners do, that that example of Zelensky and the citizens of Kiev, I think it's telling Westerners that you have wrong priorities. The world doesn't revolve around Jay-Z or the Super Bowl, Bowl halftime show or what Oprah says this or what uh, Bill Maher, a comedian at night, says. And you're, you know, you don't really, you're, you're a vacuous, superfluous culture in many ways. And there's only existential things that count. A secure border, united population, a readiness to defend your values and be unapologetic if they're better than the alternative. You don't have to be perfect to be good. And the Ukrainians, far poorer, far more uh, disadvantaged in some sense than we are, are showing a, a level of courage. I think a lot of Western leaders and their and their uh, elected officials are saying, I wonder if we would do that, given the postmodern status of our population and our popular culture. So I think that it's it's a wake up call that maybe the woke, you know, oh, you didn't you weren't born in 1776. You were born in 1690. Oh, you can't put up a statue of Lincoln. Oh, we've got to tear down Jefferson. Oh, we've got to rename Father Hunipio Serra um, Boulevard or something. All of that is superfluous when it gets down to it. And the Ukrainians are reminding of us of that. There's, a, you know, there's an old iron law, I would have thought, uh, that uh, conviction will overcome uh, self-doubt and self-loathing any time. And as you say, all of these massive attacks we're seeing on our history now look like attacks on history, but are actually attacks on our culture, leaving our young people thinking, well, you know, why would you stand up for a dreadful, nightmarish culture like this? But to, to come to the Taiwanese for a moment, um, they're different, of course, to the Ukrainians. It's a highly successful democracy. Uh, very prosperous place, population roughly the same as Australia, a wealthy country, as I mentioned. Um, would they would they inspire us with their willingness to stand up for their citizenship? We'll come to citizenship in a moment. Yeah, I think they do. I think they do. I think what's happening to the West is that it's very ironic is that the established West, the Anglo-speaking West, the former British Commonwealth in the United States, and then the countries that comp that make up NATO and the EU with the westernized democracies in, democ in Taiwan and South Korea and Japan. Uh, the heart of the West, if you, take, if you look at all of those Western countries, the heart of it was traditionally in Washington, London, and Paris. 
And yet at the core of the West, there's the greatest degree of agnosticism, timidity, uncertainty. And I know that you suffer from those same symptomology, but you're still a frontier country. You're right near China. You have no margin of error. You're very rich. Uh, one of the richest continents or nations in the world naturally, but you don't have a large population. You're, and that makes you a target by China. So there's still a garrison mentality among many Australians that you don't have that margin of error that Europe and the United States has traditionally. And the same is true of Taiwan. The same is true, uh, I think, of South Korea for a while longer. Japan, perhaps. But I, I think Americans in Eastern, I mean, um, what I'm getting at, John, is Western Europeans are going to get inspiration from Eastern Europeans that don't have that level of affluence and historical protection are from Southern Europeans like the Greeks. And the same thing is true of the Americans when they look at Australia, and the same thing is true of the Jap Japanese when they look at Taiwan or South Korea. So I hope that these, I guess Donald Rumsfeld got in trouble for calling old Europe and new Europe, but he was trying to make that point 20 years ago that when you, you're up against it and you have existential enemies in your neighborhood and they're very clear about what they want to do to you, then it's very hard to worry about the ethnic makeup of the diversity program at your university. It really is. Or whether you should uh, put a homeless person in a permanent shelter or a tent. I mean, this is what we're obsessed with in the West and in countries that don't have the margin of safety that we do or the level of affluence and leisure can't afford to do that. Point taken. Well, that's a, a, a very useful segue, I think, into uh, what you've been writing about the dying citizens. If you stop and think about it, it occurs to me that if you look at the Ukraine and you contemplate what the Chinese might like to do with reunification, what they've already done in Hong Kong, it's a denial, if you like, of the people's sovereignty, of their self-determination by authoritarian regimes that don't respect the individual and don't have a system of common law because they don't have an idea of the universalism of, uh, of, their, of their population, if you like, that all people, uh, if you like, born equal, even if you get unequal outcomes in life, they should be subject to a common law. Um, on the other hand, I think in, in essence, what you are arguing, that the, the title says it all, the dying citizen, um, in the West, we're giving up voluntarily our citizenship. But can we explore this for a while? What do you mean by citizenship and why is it a citizen different, if you like, to a subject? It's a very late concept, John. We, civilization is 7,500 years old. It starts in the Near East, but it didn't appear citizenship until about 2,500 years ago in the 7th and 8th centuries in Greece. And I wrote a book called The Other Greeks trying to explain the economic basis of it, but essentially it was a revolutionary idea that residents that had either been serfs or slaves or subjects or peasants took it upon themselves to create their own government. And they were given rights, they felt inalienable rights, and they had responsibilities to perpetuate them. So property from now, from was theirs, they could pass it on. They could invest in it when they were 80 years old and the idea that their children had a legal right to it. And so it was the rule of law for everybody, regardless, uh, at least there were, uh, there was a movement to get rid of property qualifications very early on, and people were going to be equal, uh, not on the back end, but on the front end. And so that idea 
wax and wane throughout the West. And my point was that if you looked historically through that odyssey, there were certain, I, I guess they would call them organic challenges or pre-modern challenges. And then there were contrived or constructed or postmodern challenges. And I kind of divided that book in two. And the, the organic natural status of man was not to have a middle class, to have a lord and a serf, a master in the keep, peasants around the walls. That's the story of mankind. But in Greece, we did have a middle class. There was a word for it, the mesoi. They were the hoplites of the phalanx. They were the uh, voters in the ecclesia, and they owned about 10 acres of farmland, and they controlled the, their own method of production, if I could use that Marxist term. And then, in addition to that, they said they were not just residents. They just didn't come and go into Attica or Argos. They had borders. And borders meant that they didn't have the arrogance that they could spread these ideas everywhere, that the more that they diluted from the center, the more they spread, they diluted themselves. So they said, this is Thebes, and inside we'll have Theban democracy, and outside the Athenians can go radical or what a globalist, whatever they want, but we can't, we can't influence, and, and if we try to, we're going to dilute it. So a border was very essential. And then third, people gave up their tribal identities. I mean, we say Greeks, but they had all sorts of tribal identities as, as you know, the word tribe is a Latin word from the three groups that were pre-state. But once you give up your affinity to your so-called first cousin and you replace it with an abstract loyalty to the state, then you have a meritocracy. And we don't, you know, I, I go to the Middle East and I've said that a lot, but I often ask people in such a wealthy country as yours in, you know, Libya or Algeria or Egypt, what's wrong? And I usually get the same answer. We hire our first cousins, Victor. We, we don't hire the best person. We're loyal to our particular tribe or clan. And yet here, what I'm getting at is all of those distinctions that, that birth citizenship in this postmodern age we're losing the middle class by every economic data point. We know that. We're losing borders. We're becoming mere residents. And we're becoming tribal. We're retribalizing. And so that's what I, I'm very worried. If you ask an American 30 years ago, I am a resident. What can I not do that a citizen can do? The citizen would say, well, you can't leave the United States without a passport, I'm sorry, you don't have that right. If you'd leave the United States, you might not get back. That's gone, at least in the southern border. People come across all the time. The person said, you can't serve in the military, only citizen, that's gone. The person would say, you can't enlist or affect or participate in a US national campaign, that's gone. They would say, you cannot vote in an election and we know now that New York said 800,000 illegal aliens will vote in the next municipal election. That's starting to be gone. And we're only left at, I can think of only one distinction. A non-citizen cannot hold office and we're already having that challenge. And so once you blur that distinction and you're tribal and you have no middle class, you're not going to have nationhood or, or citizenship. And then I mentioned that there, there was constructed elite top-down efforts, and that was uh, the rise of a permanent class of government. You have that in your country. Judge, jury, and executioners, uh, legislative, executive, judicial powers within a non-elected bureaucracy that war against the citizen with enormous powers the citizen lacks. 
there's evolutionaries in your country as ours. These are people who feel that the original founding principles are passe, got to get in our country, get rid of the filibuster, get rid of the electoral college, get rid of the 15-person Supreme Court, get rid of the state's right to establish voting laws. And then finally, and this is probably the most dangerous, this global cosmopolitanism that wealthy elites on the coast feel that their first allegiance is to some type of international body. Um, wouldn't it be good if the International Criminal Court could adjudicate American military behavior? Wouldn't it be good, as Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said, if the UN Commission on Human Rights could, could run an inquiry to see if we were systemically racist? Uh, and what do you end up with when you do that? You end up with the WHO, World Health Organization, controlled by China, assuring us that the virus was uh, not transmissible or uh, parroting the Chinese line, or you end up with Vladimir Putin, now the, the uh, rotating chair of the Security Council. Yeah, on this issue, you actually write uh, in your in your book, page 269, that one threat that you've just been talking about this uh, to citizenship comes not from foreign countries curtailing our liberties, but from Americans themselves, Britons, Australians, everywhere, deliberately widening the idea of citizenship to include the peoples of the entire world. Uh, David Goodhart, in his book, called them the anywheres, as opposed to the somewheres, and the anywheres are quite profoundly dismissive of the common people and their ideals. They think they're ignorant. They don't think they know what's good for them. Don't global events at the moment uh, in some ways shock us into realising how ridiculous this is? I mean, how do you be global citizens What's the role of a global citizen if, in fact, uh, the authoritarian regimes that have no regard for citizenship at all, only for power, where do you fit into that if you desert the ideals that made our Western societies the envy of the world? Well, if you don't have any roots or values or knowledge of your past, why would you fight for anything? And when we look at these Ukrainian interviews, at least the ones being aired in the States, there's a common theme that all of these people, men, women, children, the elderly, they all say things like this. My father fought in World War, uh, grandfather fought in World War II. This was my home. I left Wall Street to come over here and fight. Um, this is where I live. These, this is my language. This is my soil. So you can, you can see that traditional citizenship has galvanized that. Nobody is saying, well, you know, if... Ukraine is lost, I can just set up my Zoom business in Germany, or I can move over to Poland. I mean, the people obviously will do that if it's lost, but they're not on record to suggest that that's going to be an incentive to save Ukraine. So all citizens, I think, at least if the traditional protocols are of any value, when we look back at them, what makes a citizen is a, a sense of place they know their neighbors. They know the history of where they're living. They, they have a loyalty to the past. They don't want to let down the people who gave them something and died or no longer with them. There's a shame culture. I know that I'm living in a house that's uh, I'm the fifth generation here. It's a, it was built in 1870, which is very early, I guess, for California. But I have memories not just of my mother living here in this room. When she was a little girl, she told me about it. And not just her father, but her father 
who was alive when I was, telling me that his grandfather, whom I seem to know, even though he died, I think, in 1920, and I was born in 53, but I feel like I should keep it up or I should fix things, even though I should. half of me says, oh, just move to the coast and sell out. But the other half says that, well, you were given something to preserve and there's a particular shame culture. And would you want to be found wanting by your ancestors? Or And those are all ridiculed today, but they were traditionally throughout time and space very important, whether in Greece or Rome or Renaissance Italy or uh, during the even during the Enlightenment, this idea that a Western citizen has roots and loyalties and patriotism and nationhood that makes them distinct. And I guess the left feels that after World War One or World War Two, patriotism was a bad word or nationalism was a bad word, but they haven't replaced it with anything. International Marxism or internationalism or cosmopolitanism has I, I, if anybody will show me the the uh, the fruits of that of that project I'd be curious because when they tell me well internationalism allows free trade and allows commerce on the seas I say no it doesn't the US Navy does take away the US Navy and you've got the pirates in the Red Sea everywhere take away NATO and you've got chaos so it's still nations and partnerships and alliances, not internationalism. And at the heart of that, surely, is this idea that all cultures are equal, um, when in reality they are not. Some have plainly established on very different grounds, I would say in the West, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of Judeo-Christian idea of the dignity and worth of every individual in the eyes of a higher authority, whether we agree with them or like them or are cleverer than them is irrelevant. We have to have a, a reasonable degree of respect for them. And all of that's being washed out. But they, I, you talk about the hollowing out of the middle classes. My understanding is that real wages in the United States are flatlined now for something like four decades. Yes. And that Especially, the increase in consumption has yes. been debt financed. Yes. We've had four a series of... Sorry. Yeah. Well, go ahead. Four decades of static, but 12 years of actual real decline. Well, this is really frightening and comes to the heart of, I think, uh, the cultural problem for those who say, oh, you can be a, um, a personal uh, progressive and liberal, but an economic conservative. It's not working out that way. Not working out no. that way at all. Because if you stop and look at it, the problem of flatlining real wages has been made much worse by inappropriate responses to something that should never have happened if people hadn't lost their moral compass, which was the great financial crisis. COVID has accelerated it, and inappropriate responses, knee-jerk reactions, playing to populism on climate change. I'm not saying I'm a climate change denier, I'm not, but what I am saying is sound policy is a world away from bad knee-jerk policy. They're turbocharging this terrible problem of the squeezing of the middle classes while the T-shirted uh, billionaires team up almost like a new clerisy, uh, as I think uh, Joel Potkin puts it, with the Greens, with the activists, with in the background of weak government and technocrats, to say, well, we're not going to give up our lifestyle. They are becoming richer and richer every day. Asset prices continue to explode. People can't, young people can't get into homes. My Australian listeners will know that I talk about this quite a lot. But the squeezing of the middle classes and almost a sort of um, uh, 
Marie Antoinette desire to say, well, just let them eat cake because we've got to get on with saving the planet. Yeah, we see that in California. Where's the leadership from people who ought to know better? Well, you mentioned culture and religion and things of that sort. And when you are very, very wealthy, it's a natural tendency, a natural human arrogance to conflate your ability to make money or to be very successful with infinite wisdom and, and entitlement. And a lot of these people feel that reason, pure reason or pure logic and their own brains got them where they were. So they don't believe in a transcendent soul. They don't believe in a hereafter. And how that manifests itself in the real world, they love humanity in the abstract. Let's save global warming. Let's have a policy. But the, the humans before them, they have no concern for. Uh, there's no Sermon on the Mount worry about the hungry and the poor. And you can really see that totem, a totemic example is John Kerry. He's always worried about the fate of mankind, but he's willing to be culpable to destroying gas and oil production as he jets around in this private jet. And that will destroy the livelihoods of millions of Americans. It is now as we speak. I know people that uh, second generation Mexican-American people I met today that said that they can't fill their gas for $5 a gallon and they can't go do their landscaping or their work if they have to pay $6, they won't be able to do it. And yet John Kerry is worried whether Vladimir Putin will be a partner. And believe me, he will be a partner into restricting emissions because that'll mean uh, more oil for him and less for others. So I think it's partly that arrogance. And then finally, the real world manifestations of what you're talking about when you lose a middle class and they're not viable. You can see it in this country, $1.7 trillion in aggregate student debt. And tuition rose higher than the price of, in, of in, annual price of inflation. And the, more, the federal government eliminated this moral hazard. So the universities just loaned and loaned and loaned. The federal government said, we'll loan, we'll back it up and back it up. The students pay, supposedly are to pay uh, their tuition debts about fifty to sixty, seventy thousand per student, and there were there were ramifications of that. The age when Americans get married has gone from twenty three to to about twenty eight. the The age when they have their first child has gone all the way up into their early thirties. The fertility rate just in twenty five years has gone from two point one to one point seven. The age when they can buy a house is gone up to their middle and late 40, 30s. And you know, we're back up to a high uh, inability to buy a house. We only have about 63%. We were up to 64, I think now we're 62%, I'm gonna correct myself, uh, that are homeowners. And I think this is true of the Western world uh, in general. It's sort of what Tocqueville said in Democracy in America that, you would have a prolonged adolescent when there was not an economically viable system of free market capitalism that allowed the middle class to to thrive and to profit and to have property pass it on a home then they would become wards of the state life of julia pajama boy here in this country where they expect you know they just want to if you remember the pajama ad that the obama administration ran a guy in his pajamas sometime i guess midday is drinking hot chocolate and he's urging everybody to vote for Obamacare. But uh, you know, the Ukrainians can't afford to do that and other people can't. And it's, it's a 
lotus eater narcotic for Western societies, this strange phenomenon with grown men, young men that are not plugging into the economy or they feel they either cannot or they will not man up to it, go get a job, get married, have children, buy a home. Either that's culture, and the culture then reflects the economic inability. They justify it and they, they say it's great, but really it's just a, an artifact or reaction to the fact, as you point out, that economically it's getting very hard to do. It raises the question, how long can you opiate the people? I mean, ultimately, uh, the French Revolution showed that uh, people will break out in extremely ugly ways, and if they're not careful, land themselves in an even greater mess. Um, as I look at America, and I think of its very proud tradition of um, individualism, of people accepting their responsibilities, of working hard, the so-called Protestant work ethic, all of the things that the talk we talked about so long ago, Surely that's latent to some some degree. Please tell me it is. Uh, people like you, and, and I know Jordan Peterson, uh, other media outlets like the Daily Wire with Ben Shapiro, they've got audiences now in the tens of millions of America, uh, around America and indeed around the world. Um, the National Review recently reported that millions of parents across the country are fighting back against the spread of critical race theory, and that's had political implications in America by protesting its presence in their schools. At least you've got a culture war. Sometimes in Australia, it seems to be impossible to move anyone. But the point really is, do you think this can change anything? I know Jordan Peterson, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but in a recent conversation, he said to me, you know, this is where you will change opinions now. You won't be able to do it through the mainstream media. They won't concentrate well enough. They're too interested in conflict. They're too lacking in professionalism. It's only a very few high quality journals left that explore ideas but you go online, the very thing we're doing here, I mean, I'm unashamedly trying to inject a higher quality of reason and debate into the public arena because I don't think you can get good public policy without it. But I guess the question is, how optimistic are you that in view of everything that's happening, I mean, I mentioned that Australians have got a surprising handle on where the real dangers, they understand how dangerous Ukraine is, even though it's so far away, they understand that China's an even greater danger, which shows you that the elites haven't been totally successful in hoodwinking the people. How do you see it in America unfolding? Are you optimistic that perhaps there can be a turnaround? I've been more optimistic than I ever have been the last five years, and for a variety of uh, indicators. I've never seen the left so paranoid. They tried to destroy who's not really conservative. He's a, he's a empiricist moderate, Joe Rogan. He's got a larger audience than all, than all the network news combined. And for one word or inarticulate expression, then or as they misrepresent him, they try to destroy him. They try to destroy Jordan Peterson. They are so paranoid that they censor Facebook, Twitter. They looked at what happened with the Canadian truckers here, and they stopped GoFundMe. In other words, they think to themselves, we own all the institutions of communication and influence. Wall Street, media, Silicon Valley, K-12, academia, the foundation, sports, entertainment, and yet these stupid people are still not with us. And they look at this midterm, and if you look at some of the polls, there, there's an old truism in American politics that the Republicans on a generic question can get within minus five when a person answers. Who will you vote on the ticket, the person with a Republican or a Democratic affiliation? If they say 
Republican, but there are only five down, then the Republicans usually win because they have greater organization and, and turnout. And right now it ranges from anywhere from plus seven all the way up to plus 12, depending on the poll. So you've got record anger. The Republican Party is making uh, inroads in minorities uh, here in the San Joaquin Valley of California. I've never seen anything like it. And talking to uh, Mexican-American, second-generation Americans, they sound like they're a mixture of Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan. They don't want anybody telling them that they have to pay for transgendered operations. They don't believe in abortion on command. They do not want people coming across the border into their communities that have criminal records. They don't understand why they have to pay $5 a gallon for a San Francisco pie in the sky dream of some wealthy person. So, and then we look at the midterms and unlike 2010 or 1994 where the Republicans made enormous gains in a, a first term presidency, they started way down, John. The house is almost even. So when they talk about 30 or 40 seats, that's not winning, you know, that's like winning 70 when you're 30 down. And if you lose four, and the Senate's already even, they lose four or five seats. And essentially, within months, this progressive agenda will stop. And it will have to hinge on either a court-ordered agenda by a liberal judge or an executive order by Joe Biden. And unlike Barack Obama and Bill Clinton, who had enormous charismatic influence and abilities. They were very articulate, they were young, they were dynamic, and they had unpopular agendas. But by the sheer weight of the personas, they were able to push these agenda through. Joe Biden is a very old and infirm 79. And he, he was never uh, eloquent, and he was always petulant. And those, those traits, unfortunately, have been accentuated. So I don't see a good future for them. I, I look around the party and I say, Nancy Pelosi is 81. James Clyburn, the, the majority whip, is 82, I think. Chuck Schumer is 74. They don't have a lot of youthful, uh, energetic leadership. And when you talk about a Ben Shapiro or Joe Rogan, or any of these grassroots people, they, uh, it's very funny, they don't reference their BAs, PhDs, MAs, journalism degrees, even though many of them are highly educated. Their appeal is their performance, whereas the left, of all ideologies, they are the most uh, antiquated, and they hire and they reference by their the school they went to, their certification. Uh, seeing, I work for the New York Times. I have a PhD in journalism from Columbia. This kind of stuff. So they're ossified, they're calcified, and the real dynamic fluidity, podcast, videos, talk radio. It's kind of the it it thrives because it's sort of like in the arena, thumbs up and thumbs down, and the popular audience reacts to it. And I grew up with this idea that all these 60s people were, you know, they're marching on the Pentagon, marching on the Capitol, marching on uh, the TV station. Well, now they're all in those places. And their idea of a revolution is become a kind of a Stalinist, bloated apparatchik on the May Day dais as you watch the, the missiles on May Day parade. And they're like the Soviets. They're old, they're tired, they're intolerant, they're paranoid. That's the left, and I think, in the West. And the energy now is with the right, 
part of it's because youth are always rebellious against the orthodoxy, but part of it is that um, they're very afraid of what the left wants for them. The left does not believe in civil liberties anymore. In fact, it believes in the opposite. It believes in the powers of the FBI, the CIA, the NSA to spy, to surveil, to use powers of government for superior moral means, they feel. They want the tools so they can enact a a superior moral vision for us. So I think I'm very optimistic. I have never seen anything. And I, I speak to you as I know that I've come on before, John, and been a little bit pessimistic, but things are rapidly changing here. And Ukraine is sort of a, a wake-up call on a lot of fronts here in the United States. I was listening to a senator today who has voted against every energy and uh, initiative, and, I, and he was asked, on the radio delivery, are you going to support fracking? And are you, and he said, I've always supported fracking. What are you doing this to me? I mean, he just blatantly lied because he felt that to reveal his true intentions was a suicide pact in November. What, are, what sort of names should we uh, in other parts of the world look to uh, as rising stars politically in America? We have a great interest in this. We want America to pull itself back together. I mean, we're great believers in the free world and you're still the dominant player. <laughs> no. Uh, I think on the political scene, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of dynamic people. I think whether Trump runs or whether he gets the nominations, Mike Pompeo or Tom Cotton, Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio has matured a great deal from when we last saw him. And uh, Ben Shapiro, obviously, Candace Owens, uh, Jordan Peterson, very influential, Joe Rogan. These are all people who made it on their own talents. It wasn't an old boy network that said, you know, your Yale dean calls CBS vice president to get you a job. So they're, they're meritocratic people. And uh, in each of these fields we're talking about, when I look at academia and I see who are the innovative people who are challenging orthodoxy, say where I work at the Hoover Institution. And there are people who are pariahs. And, you know, Neil Ferguson, the historian, not the uh, the Oxford epidemiologist modeler, but he's become very influential and he's becoming more and more conservative. Andrew Roberts, who's a visitor, the, the biographer, uh, Scott Atlas, who was ridiculed and defamed is uh, very inspirational because all of what he said about our medical protocols has been confirmed. And what he warned us about was right, even though he was destroyed and, and smeared. So there's people that I work with, Tom Soul is still active. I'm, I'm very proud to have their association, even though they're considered eccentrics or outliers. But uh, I, I think there's a lot of uh, reasons to be happy. And one of the, in our country, this will, we will succeed or fail in the degree to which, whether it was wise or not, opening our borders and destroying the immigration policy. We have let in 50 million people now who were not born in the United States. And we have a lot of people who are Hispanic, African-American and mixed heritage who have been told by the Democratic Party that you will be a victim and we will identify the victimizers of you and they're white male, Christian, heterosexual, uh, middle-class people. And that that message is boomeranging. And so 
we're seeing astronomical changes. Uh, I, I've never, in my own community, if you had told me that 45% of the Mexican-American vote voted for Donald Trump, or that Californians would recall a school board by 73% of leftists, and I shouldn't say Californians, John, I mean San Francisco liberals. And here in the state, we voted to maintain Prop 209, which forbid the use of race as a criterion for admissions and hiring in California. So I think part of it is like we can't take credit for it on the right. This is the first administration in my memory that was unapologetically socialist or hard left. And they wanted the reins of power and they got it legislatively, judicially, and executively. And what did they do? This has been the greatest disaster of any first-year president in memory. Every single issue is underwater. Every single issue has failed. The people, whether they're left or right, black, white, male or female, they say, I can't afford gas. I have $10,000 in the bank. That's all I have. I get zero interest. It's declined in value by seven or eight percent. I don't know anything about real estate. I can't even buy a house. I don't know how to invest in the stock market. I only have a passbook account. I just heard that story the other day. They go in and buy plywood. I put some plywood on this home a year ago, John. It was seven dollars for four by eight sheet of ply, five eighths inch fly, uh, plywood. And I was told by the roofer, guess what, Victor? We're in luck. We got plywood for fifty-five dollars a sheet. It's wow. not nine. It's not 90 anymore like it was a few months ago, 90. Wow. These are astronomical changes. I flew over the port of Los Angeles over the weekend. I've never seen anything like it, John. There were ships, they looked like um, a checkerboard, just these huge tankers, cargo ships, all backed up because the port is dysfunctional. And I guess COVID mandates or, or high-priced labor, whatever the particular or regulations on the part of California. And so as we were turning in this, it was a prop plane. We also looked at the train yard and it was scattered with trash where people had been looting the Union Pacific trains coming out of the port. And I said to myself, this is what this is the face of chaos. And it was chaos incurred in one year and it was self-induced. It was suicidal, it was cannibalistic. And everybody's seen that. So we have a. I hope we don't blow it. We have a great opportunity on the traditional side to tell the people, this is why you're dissatisfied. We agree with you, and here are is a protocol or an agenda or a contract that will that will fortify your worries and institutionalize changes, so we never get back to this this uh, terrible place we have been in. On the issue of blowing it, it does. Uh, there's an aspect of this which really concerns me. You mentioned Neil Ferguson, his wife, Ayan Hirsiali, says that we're in danger of no longer living in a democracy, but in an emocracy where everybody emotes and confuses, as Thomas Sowell puts it, thinking and feeling. I think feeling is thinking. We must, I think, avoid the trap as we push against the left that is strangely unacquainted with facts, data, reason and reasonableness, not to fall into that same trap. We want to argue the facts and not deny our own commitment to recognising the worth and dignity of even people we vehemently disagree with. I think that's been so alienating in our culture, and it's one of the great Achilles heels of the progressives, their nastiness. We've got to avoid falling into that trap, it seems to me. Do you, do you have a view? I do. I, I think that we have to do two things. As I look at the 
I, I try to look back at ancient revolutions in Greece and Rome or what brought the Jacobins to power or what brought the Bolsheviks to power. And I think there's there's two lessons. People have to be courageous and forthright and honest to oppose that. And they can't sit by the sidelines or the minority will seize power and destroy their culture and their nation. But by the same token, I agree with you that in their zealousness to defeat that danger, they can't alienate people. And I'll mm. give you an example of what I mean. And I voted for Donald Trump. I'm a big supporter. And we've talked about that. But the other day, he gave a speech to CPAC. It was a good speech. But at one point, he said, Putin is a genius. But he gave a whole preface about all the bad things Putin did. And he meant to say that Putin had figured out us and therefore he was a genius and we were appeasing and weak and therefore we were dumb. But as it came out, he didn't use a qualifying adjective. And so the, the headlines the next nanosecond was Trump calls Putin a genius, his own president dumb. Whereas if he had just said Putin is one of those evil geniuses, one of those dangerous geniuses. And if he had just said Biden is acting tragically dumb or unfortunately dumb. So we ha we on the, the, the right and conservatives have to be very, very careful, given the media is against us and the popular culture, to be very careful in the, the words we say, the expressions we use. And it's much better to be quiet and smiling and carry a club than it is to be angry and loud with a twig. So my, I guess my advice to conservatives is the more that you can be civil, the more forceful you can be. And the more that you want to go down a cul-de-sac and argue and scream and yell and, and uh, smear somebody, the less clout you're gonna have. And I would rather have a lot of clout and not pick fights uh, that are gratuitous. Well, the whole idea of citizenship, I think, is that we do accord every one of our fellow human beings a degree of appropriate respect and dignity. And you've been very generous with your time, but I actually want to just read in something that Roger Kimball wrote about your book, because it summarises what we've been talking about. And I think I'm just keen for people to pick it up and read it. Uh, he says that uh, you've shown that political freedom is inextricable from the life of citizenship. And citizenship is not a given, it's an achievement, and an achievement, moreover, that must be tended to survive. Most of history unfolded without citizens, only subjects, serfs, slaves, and sycophants. And just as there were ages before citizenship, so we can see from our own experience that citizenship can decay and fail. Those are, I think, um, very powerful words and a great summation of, of, of the ideas that you are so effective at getting across, and I'm certainly trying to get across myself as an Australian who believes in the dignity of all and, and the idea of people coming together in a democracy, hanging on to their freedoms, recognising that they own their freedoms, and we only surrender such freedoms as we need to for the common good by consent to government, whereas we live in a world that wants to reverse that. It's very fragile and you can see that with the, if somebody had told me five years ago that Justin Trudeau would declare martial law and 
seize the assets of people, many of whom were protesting peacefully, and take their trucks away from them. I would never believe it in Canada. But on the other hand, if somebody had believed, have told me five years ago that during the COVID lockdown until recently in my own hometown, if you were a small mom and top flower sh store or shoe owner, you would be shut down while Walmart who sold shoes and flowers would be wide open. And that decision would be made by an unelected bureaucrat and it would have the force of law. I wouldn't have believed that. So we've got to be vigilant because we have to realize that we're an aberration historically and contemporaneously. Citizenship is, is there's fewer demo, democratic or constitutional governments in the world today than non-constitutional governments. And that's a natural order of things for men to be too busy or not equipped to handle the burdens of citizenship. And we can lose it any time, even in your country. And I know I get this third hand because I'm not I'm not in your country, but it seems to me that you suffered the same perils and challenges that we did with the lockdown and that you you went after people um, that might have had, let's say, a very severe case of COVID with a high antibody level. And yet they either were worried about getting a vaccination because of the reaction or I don't know, but here in the United States, as in Australia, we had people who might have had one vaccination, but not the second, or they chose not to get a booster, or they were just so, they had very high levels of antibodies, and yet we, we stripped away their constitutional rights, and more importantly, we demonized them. We said they were subversives, they were going to kill us, they were, we, we made them second-tier citizens. I, I went into New York with a restaurant and I had the two Moderna shots and a, a case of COVID and a very high antibody level. And the person that was ahead of me was talking to me in line and he was asking me, have you ever had an antibody test? I said, yeah, a doctor gave it to me without my knowledge and it was 2400, which is very high. And he said, mine was off the scale too. But he said, let's see what happens. So he went ahead of me and they would not let him in to eat. And they said, no, you can't get in here. You don't have a even though natural immunity, we find out later, was as efficacious as it's effective. Uh, in most cases, it's a vaccination. And these, these decisions were not made in a democratic fashion. They were made by an Anthony Fauci or Mr. Collins at the CDC. So the, COVID, like Ukraine, have been wake-up calls, I think, uh, to us all that what we inherited is very, very tenuous, fragile transitory if we're not careful. You've been very generous with your time. I, I deeply appreciate it. Uh, and let's press on wherever we can, seeking with reason, with firm politeness, with respectful engagement to push it back against the enemies of freedom from within and without. That's what we now confront. So I, I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you. And I have uh, high regard for your show, John, and I, I'm always delighted to come on and talk to your audience. Thank you. You've been listening to John Anderson Direct. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.